So we're in week four of our series, Lessons from the Wilderness. We've been looking at stories of Israel's years of wandering through the wilderness and some of the lessons that God was teaching them and trying to uncover what these lessons might have to teach us today. And today we're looking at an aspect of Israel's time in the wilderness that is of central importance, and yet it's something that's very easy for us to miss. It's something that's a, a absolutely central, if not the primary theme of the book of Exodus, um, but it comes in the form of chapters and verses that are difficult for the modern person to read, very difficult for the modern person to care about, and really just the kind of thing that you end up skipping or skimming past in your reading plan. So let me ask you a question as we start here. If you were to try to think of the primary point, the primary theme, the main moments of significance in the book of Exodus, what kind of things do you come up with? Chances are all the stuff you think of are things related to the Exodus event itself. I mean, that's what the book is named for. So you probably think of things like the 10 plagues of Egypt or the Nile River turning into blood, which is kind of the beginning of that section, or the people of Israel miraculously crossing the Red Sea as God parts it, things like that. Maybe Moses at the burning bush meeting Israel's God for the first time. But the truth is, if you actually look at the book of Exodus and how it's proportioned and kind of where it spends the majority of its time, there's a massive theme that usually goes unnoticed. If you were to divide the book of Exodus into different sections, just really generally, what you would find is that there's about four chapters at the beginning that sort of establish the story and explain who Moses is and how he comes to do what he's doing. So there's four chapters on that. Then there's about 12 chapters on Israel's rescue from slavery. And that's really being pretty generous because mixed in with that, there's a bunch of other stuff that's only tangentially related to that, but approximately 12. After that, you have three chapters of Israel wandering in the wilderness and God providing bread and water for them. We looked at those at the beginning of the series. Then you have six chapters where Israel receives the law, and then the book ends with 12 out of 15 chapters focused on the instructions and the building of the tabernacle. 12 out of 15. We're talking about roughly a third of the book that's all focused on how to build the tabernacle in the first section, then there's kind of an episode dividing these two sections, and then a second section that's all dedicated to the actual description of it being built. So you could say this is the primary theme of the book of Exodus, or at least one of the primary themes in terms of how much space it's given. And not just space, but, but detail. I mean, when it gets into the descriptions of how to build the tabernacle, it gets incredibly specific. The tabernacle, we should say up front, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, is kind of the mobile tent predecessor to the temple. So before Israel comes into Jerusalem and actually builds a temple that will be a building that will always stay in Jerusalem, um, prior to that, as they travel, they have a tent version of that. And so everywhere they go, they can pack this entire tent up, carry it with them, and then whenever they stop in a given area, the tent is set back up and the people of Israel encamp all around the tabernacle on all sides of it. And so, again, the kind of level of detail given to describing how it's made is really, really precise. I'll give you just one example. This is from Exodus 25, verse 10. It says, They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and out shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. That's literally 
two verses just talking about building the ark, which is one thing that will go inside the tabernacle. So you're talking about chapter after chapter of that level of detail. Then, as if that weren't enough, you have an episode separating them that we'll talk about in a little bit, and then a second section where the actual process of building the tabernacle is written down, and it is, in many places, almost word for word the same. So that example we just looked at of the ark, if you jump ahead to Exodus chapter 37, 12 chapters later, you read this. Bezalel, this is the man who is responsible for actually making, he's the artisan who makes most of the tabernacle. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold around it. So you can see, it's almost word for word. The first part is God telling Moses, this is exactly how I want it made. And then the second time, it's Moses and Bezalel making it. And the authors want you to see with really precise, exact detail, exactly how they did it and that they followed God's instructions. Exactly. So here's the question that we need to answer today. And it's a really deeply important one. What is the big deal with the tabernacle? Why is the tabernacle so important? Why is it so significant that it takes them just as much time and space as describing the entire Exodus event to talk about it? Why does it deserve this incredible level of detail? And believe it or not, the answer to that question is one of the most central and significant truths of Christianity. So let's jump in. The first question we have to ask is, what is the tabernacle there for? Why do they have it? And God tells us really clearly at the very beginning of this section why the tabernacle is going to be built. It's in Exodus 25, verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Now, this is a really helpful verse because it contains a purpose statement. Usually when you see a word like that, you could substitute mentally in order that. Meaning he's saying the reason why they're making a sanctuary. Let them make me a sanctuary. Why? In order that I may dwell in their midst. What a powerful verse. Now, if you're thinking Bible, you're thinking Old Testament, what comes to mind when you think about God dwelling in the midst of humanity? It should take your mind right back to Genesis 1 and 2, to the Garden of Eden. Remember, God creates this good garden world and he places humanity in it. And there are verses in those sections that are incredibly beautiful about God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Remember, originally, heaven and earth were meant to be together. God's dwelling place was meant to be with humanity in the garden. No separation between God and man and heaven and earth. This is the way it was designed to be. Now, of course, in Genesis 3, humanity rebels against God. And as a result of that sin and rebellion and selfishness, humanity and God are separated. There's a gulf placed between them. And one of the ways this is pictured is in the Garden of Eden itself, after Adam and Eve are sent out, there's a guardian angel called a, a cherub, this angelic guard of Eden, standing there with a fiery sword in order to bar the way back in to the presence of God. So keep these images in your mind. Before they were in the garden, in the presence of God with the tree of life, and after sin and rebellion, there's this separation between the holy God and the sinful people. And one of the pictures of that is this, this guardian angel guarding the way back in, this cherub. And so when God in Exodus chapter 25 says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, what we're supposed to see is that God is trying to recreate a little piece of heaven on earth. 
He's trying to almost put a beachhead of the Garden of Eden back into sinful, fallen creation. The curse has rendered that kind of closeness and dwelling together impossible for the time being. But even in that, God desires to dwell among his people to restore a piece of what was lost in Eden. And the place that he chooses to do that is the tabernacle. And that's actually really clear if you get into the design of the tabernacle and some of the things that are in there. And it becomes even more clear later when the temple is built. But we'll just look at a couple of examples. One of the things that's in the very middle of the tabernacle is a place called the Holy of Holies. This is a perfect cube. And this is kind of the spot where the the unmitigated, special, immediate presence of God dwelled. Now, outside of that was a place called the holy place. You have the holy place, which is quite holy. You're very close to the presence of God. And then inside of that, you have the most holy place or the holy of holies. In the holy place, one of the things that was in there was a lamp that is explicitly said to be shaped like a tree. This kind of seven-topped lamp that always has oil, that is always burning, that always has light shining. So in the presence of God, you have a tree just like in the Garden of Eden. Now, on top of that, the thing that separates the holy place from the most holy place is a veil or a curtain. And what they sew into that curtain, God instructs them, is cherubim, the same type of angel that in Genesis 3 was said to guard the way back into Eden. So humanity can't come back into Eden, into the immediate presence of God, because the way is barred there by an angelic guard. And all over the veil that's meant to separate the holy place from the, from the most holy place is images of that same angelic guard. All of this is meant to help us see this as a microcosm of Eden, a little piece of heaven on earth. And it also helps us understand some of the functions of the tabernacle. Because what they end up doing at the tabernacle, according to God's instruction, is all kinds of different sacrifices and rituals, many of which were meant to provide atonement for sin. So Israel is going to continue to be a sinful people and make mistakes, and God provides means by which they can offer sacrifices in order to atone for those sins. And those things take place in the tabernacle. And seeing that function of of atonement for sin as part of the tabernacle helps us understand that episode or that story that separates the instructions for the tabernacle with the actual building of the tabernacle. See, the story that happens in between those two sections is the story of Israel worshiping the golden calf. And I wish we had time to walk through that story in detail because it is packed with incredibly significant things. But in general, here's what happens. Moses receives the Ten Commandments, Israel agrees to the covenant with God, and then Moses goes up the mountain to receive the details of that covenant, including the instructions for the tabernacle. While he's up there, 40 days go by, and the people of Israel down below get restless and get freaked out and impatient and fearful. And so they tell Aaron, make us a new God that we can worship. And so Moses, or Aaron rather, I'm sorry, collects all of these different precious metals from them, creates a golden calf for them, and they worship that golden calf instead. If you're following the story, they've just received the Ten Commandments, the first of which is, have no other God before me, and the second of which is, don't make idols. And so right after having received that and agreed, Moses goes up to get the rest of the details, and the people of Israel break those first two commandments. It's an iconic story of sin and rebellion. And afterwards, Moses has to intercede on behalf of the people and plead for them. And so God, in grace and mercy, reaffirms the covenant with them that they have just broken. And all of that takes place in between the instructions for the tabernacle and the building of the tabernacle. So what are we supposed to see here? 
we're supposed to see God expressing a desire to dwell among his people. And then a story of his people's horrible, irrepressible sinfulness, all of the reasons why they should not be in the presence of a holy God. And then the very next thing after that is the building of the tabernacle. You see God's desire to dwell with his people, their sinfulness, and then the means by which God will still dwell among them, even though they are so sinful. So the idea of this tabernacle is this is the means and mechanism by which a holy God can actually dwell with unholy, sinful people. There have to be all of these kind of go-betweens and the veil and the sacrificial system and all of these other things in order for God to dwell among them. Because again, chapter 25, verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This God desires to dwell among his people and he's willing to do what's necessary to make that happen. And that's one of the most significant things about the tabernacle. We think of it as the place where, where sin is atoned for and where sacrifices take place, and it is. But that is a secondary purpose. I mean, that's a means to an end. The ultimate true purpose of the tabernacle is for God to dwell among his people. And the sacrifices for sin and all of these other things are the means by which that can be accomplished at this point in history. It's a beautiful truth that despite all of their mistakes and failures, and all of the things that we've already read and you'll continue to see throughout the wilderness wanderings, all the things that make Israel unlikable, undeserving of God's love. In spite of all of that, he desires to dwell among them. Now, when you fast forward 1,500 years, all of these images and so many more really come to life and find their fulfillment in the person of Jesus and in some really surprising and profound ways. So the beginning of John's gospel John chapter 1, famously, it's, it's one of the most beautiful pieces of writing in all of human history. It's this poetic, brilliant explanation of the fact that Jesus is and always has been God. And one of the culminating moments of that section is verse 14, where John again famously writes this, and the word, by which he means Jesus, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So he says, this eternal word, which he has just spent 13 verses extolling and talking about how powerful and profound and how all-encompassing it is. He says, that very word became flesh and dwelt among us. But the word that he uses for dwelt is a really uncommon word in the New Testament. John is actually the only author who uses this word. He uses it here and in one other book that we'll talk about later. The word is skenao in Greek, and what it actually means is to set up a tent, I mean, it can be used in this way, meaning like to establish a residence or to take up residence in a, in a given place, but it concretely, literally means tabernacle, put up a tent. And you know this because all throughout the Greek translations of the Old Testament, this is the word used for the tabernacle in the Old Testament. So what John wants you to see, if you were a Greek reader of this, if you were a Greek-speaking Jewish reader of this text, what would jump out at you is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So just as God, among the people of Israel in the wilderness, takes his holy, all-consuming, immediate presence and wraps it in a tent, Jesus is the holy, all-consuming, immediate presence of God wrapped in flesh. And all the functions of the tabernacle in the temple find their fulfillment in him. We don't have time to discuss all of those, but of course he's Emmanuel, he's God with us, he's God dwelling among us just as the tabernacle was but he's also the ultimate means by which sin is dealt with. 
See, all the sacrifices that took place in the tabernacle and the temple were temporary. They weren't for all time. They had to be repeated over and over again. This is a point the author of Hebrew makes, Hebrews makes. For Jesus, it's a one-time permanent sacrifice for sin. And here's the beautiful thing. When that happens, when Jesus dies on the cross for the sin of humanity, what happens in the temple? The veil, which has stood for hundreds of years in the temple at this point, covered as it is with these cherubim, these angelic guards meant to block the way into God's presence from sinful people. That veil tears in two from top to bottom when Jesus dies on the cross. That necessary separation between God and man, that that guard from the, the tree of life, the presence of God, that thing that stood between necessarily a holy God and an unholy people is removed. And now anyone who puts their faith in Jesus can have the presence of God with them and in them. In fact, the New Testament will go on to say after this, after Jesus ascends to heaven, the place where God chooses to establish his temple is in the church individually and corporately. So if you're a Christian, the temple is you. The Spirit of God is with you. And this is all made possible by Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment of that temple and tabernacle. God tabernacled in flesh, dying on the cross, tearing the veil, opening the way again between God and man. And it doesn't stop there. If you go to the very end of the Bible, talking literally the last couple of chapters, Revelation 21, you have these incredible pictures of new creation, of the future toward which all of history is heading. And in that new creation, you have descriptions like this one. It's Revelation 21, starting at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, this is, again, the author, John. And both of those times that he uses the word dwell, it's that same Greek word, skenao. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. Once again, he will tabernacle with them, literally. And so the idea of this picture here is that after Jesus has returned and righted every wrong and wiped every tear and established new heavens and new earth, All of creation will be God's tabernacle. More specifically, all of creation will be like the holy of holies, like the most holy place. God's immediate, unmitigated presence will fill all of creation. That's that's the trajectory towards which all of history is heading. And in the meantime, God has established his temple in humanity, but the ultimate goal is that he will return, right every wrong, remove everything that causes that separation between man and God, and he will dwell with his people again. It will be at the end as it was in the beginning, like a new Eden. See, in Christianity, we are often so focused, and rightfully so, we're so focused on the death and resurrection of Jesus as kind of the culmination of history, which it is. And that's, that's where all of our focus and attention sits most of the time. And it can be so focused on that we forget that it was a means to an end. God dealing with sin wasn't the end in and of itself. 
it was a means for him to achieve the goal toward which all of history was pointing, which is for him to restore that relationship that was broken between God and his creation, between God and his people. The point is God wants to dwell again with humanity. And the forgiveness of sin is the means by which that can be possible, by which that can be justly and rightly done. And so here's the thing. This is where it becomes incredibly practical and where the rubber really meets the road for us. Because we have to look deep in our hearts and and within ourselves and ask ourselves whether or not we actually believe that to be true deep down. Do you, in your heart of hearts, actually believe that God wants to be with you? Stop and ask yourself that. I mean, like, if you're a Christian, then you probably know to sign on the dotted line saying that you believe that God loves you. But when you actually think about the question, does God want to be with you? Do you believe that to be true? So I think most of us, I mean, let me first say, if the answer to that for you is yes, then praise God, what a gift. But for many of us, myself included, the default feeling is more like God tolerates me. Like God, he loves me um, because he has to, and he tolerates me because of what Jesus accomplished at the cross. But if in, my, in my heart of hearts, when I ask, do I believe that God actually wants to be with me? Man, that's a challenge for me. And so the lesson from this week that is so incredibly important and that needs to be a paradigm shift in the minds of most Christians is that the entire story of Scripture, the image of Eden, the image of tabernacle and temple and Jesus and new creation, all of it is meant to show you that God, for his glory, wants to be with humanity. He wants to be with you. And in our human relationships, this isn't always the case. That's part of why it's so hard for us to understand this. I mean, you look at the relationships you have with your friends and your family, and there are times when you're like, man, I'm lucky if I'm being tolerated (laughs) by people, much less that when people actually want to be with me. And we have so many kind of insecurities and fears and self-doubt that, you know, even people who do love us and do want to be with us, we're prone to just assume that they don't that they're just doing it because they have to. And so we take those kind of ideas about ourselves and our relationships and we apply them to God. And so again, if there is one thing you learn from this lesson, from the image of the tabernacle, it's this. God wants to be with you. I mean, this is what Israel was supposed to see in the tabernacle. God was telling them, I want to dwell in your midst No, you don't deserve it. No, it's not going to be simple. No, we can't just do it without all of these other things, you know, without without veils and without sacrifices. But I desire to be among you and I will do the heavy lifting and the work that is necessary to make that possible. And for you, Christian, you need to know the entire story of Scripture is about everything that God has done to be with his creation. And so know today, whoever you are, whatever you might think of yourself, God loves you. God wants to dwell with you. And he has done in the person and work of Jesus all that is necessary to make that happen. Let's pray. Father, you you know my own heart and how difficult it is for me to accept that kind of genuine love and affection from you. And so I pray that, that by your Spirit's power, Lord, that everybody who knows you who is watching this right now that they would, would have a sense, a deep and abiding sense of your genuine love for them, that you do not begrudgingly go to the cross, that you do not begrudgingly give these instructions for the tabernacle, 
but that this was your plan from the beginning. There's a reason why Genesis 2 and Revelation 21 have the same picture of God dwelling with man. It's because that is what you planned and desired from the beginning. And so I pray that we would be able to take that massive cosmic truth and apply it personally and individually, that you desire to be with us, you love us, you want to dwell in our presence. And I pray that we would feel that on a deep level, that it would provide reassurance and confidence, and that it would would lead us to a greater and greater loyalty to you and trust in you. We love you and we thank you that you have done everything necessary for that desire to become a reality for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.